Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 1st, 2014, and my guest is Mark Andreessen, legendary entrepreneur and venture capitalist. He's the co-creator of Mosaic, the co-founder of Netscape, and more recently, the co-founder of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Mark, welcome to EconTalk. Russ, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you. I want to start with your career. Uh, you were at the heart of the first browser war between Netscape and uh, Internet Explorer. That seems like hundreds of years ago. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. a little more recently than that. But give us a quick thumbnail of what happened to Netscape and then how you escaped from that uh, war. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Netscape was founded actually 20 years ago this month. Um, so uh, it's a sort of a special time uh, for me. Uh, Netscape as a company grew incredibly quickly. Um, we grew from zero to 3,500 employees in three years. It was actually really funny. Netscape was always thought of as this small little browser company, and people used to come visit us uh, on the campus, and they would just be completely flabbergasted at all the buildings and all the people. Um, and the reason we had all those people was because in addition to browsers, uh, we built a very broad range of internet software and internet services at that time. And so we were one of the first companies that did internet e-commerce systems. We're one of the first companies that did internet publishing systems. Our software for a long time powered actually a lot of the big newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal. Um, we actually are the company that built cryptography into the web. Um, and so the way that people do encryption now, uh, was, was us. We built, we created, uh, core technologies like JavaScript. Um, for a couple of years, we were the largest internet advertising business in the world with the Netscape website and Netscape portal. Um, and so, uh, that, uh, collective business grew to about $600 million a year in revenue within four years from start. Um, and, uh, and then, um, actually ultimately what happened was we, uh, we sold the company, we sold the company to, uh, America online, uh, in 1998. So the entire thing was start to finish in four years, which felt like an eternity at the time. But, uh, you know, in retrospect, was the blink of an eye. And what happened to uh, to Mark Andreessen at the time of that sale? Did you go with that sale or did you leave? Yeah, I actually became a, uh, I actually became the chief technology officer of America Online. Uh, AOL actually in that time was the most valuable internet company. Um, and so AOL, uh, within a year after our sale, AOL was a company that was worth $170 billion dollars. Um, on the on the stock market, and that was a company that was in the dial-up ISP business, if you recall that. Um, yep. They had 25 million dial-up ISPs, and that was right before the arrival of broadband, um, which was going to just completely destroy the dial-up ISP business. Um, uh, for, the, for, for those who believe in the efficient market hypotheses, uh, one of the uh, counter-examples would be a dial-up ISP worth $170 billion heading straight into broadband. Yeah. which made no sense at all. Uh, well, it didn't, last, it, it it didn't was, last that long. <laughs> it did not last that long. Well, and in fact, what happened was the, the management team at AOL actually figured that out. I mean, they, they realized it. And so actually, right, what happened was they traded their equity, uh, which they knew was going to collapse in value. They traded it for Time Warner equity, um, and they, they bought Time Warner. Um, and so that led to the famous AOL-Time Warner merger, which was one of the great catastrophes you know, in recent business history. Um, I actually stayed at, I was at AOL for about a year, uh, stayed for about a year, uh, sort of, we have this sort of tradition in the tech industry where when you get, when your company gets bought, you typically have a period of indentured servitude um, where you, uh, you know, you, you, you stay for at least a while to help make sure the integration happens. Um, and so I stayed for a year and then I left and started my second company. Which was? Uh, which was uh, actually the first cloud computing company. So um, this now kind of big trend of cloud computing was something we helped kick off in 1999. Um, that was a company called Loud Cloud. Um, and uh, that was really the first company doing what today is done with uh, things like Amazon Web Services. Uh, that company actually also grew very fast. Uh, from a, We grew from a standing start to a, quite a large business in the course of the first year. Um, and then we hit the uh, dot-com collapse, uh, like running into a buzzsaw. Um, and so, uh, half of our customers were dot coms, uh, which virtually all went bankrupt. Um, and then the other half were big companies. Uh, our clients were big companies who were in a panic because they felt like they had to compete with the dot coms by launching all kinds of new internet efforts. Um, and when the dot coms went bankrupt, most of those, uh, big companies said, Oh, I guess this internet thing isn't serious. I guess it's all going to go away. And they shut down most of those efforts. Um, and so we almost lost that company. 
uh, my partner, my business partner, Ben Horowitz, has actually recently written a book, uh, which is now a bestseller, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it, it, it's a business book, and it actually tells the whole story of LoudCloud, where he was, he was my business partner, and he was the CEO. Um, and it's a dramatic story, because we almost lost the company. Uh, we almost went bankrupt. And then through kind of a series of new miracles, uh, we were able to do a, a, what's called a restart. We basically completely restarted the company as a public company into a completely different business, um, and then ultimately grew it to be a successful software company. Um, and then Hewlett Packard bought that company in 2007 uh, for about $1.6 billion. Was that your main use of your time in that 99 to two, nine, 2000 to 2007 period? Yeah, so I was, yeah, so I was, I was basically, uh, uh, those were, uh, yeah, I, I started those companies basically back to back. Um, and so Netscape, Netscape was basically a company in the middle of the boom, you know, 1994 to 1998, and sort of read, you know, rode the, rode the, uh, the upper momentum of the, of the 90s tech boom. Um, LoudCloud was started at the very end of the boom. Uh, we started in September 99. Um, so we, we had about six good months before everything caved in. Um, and then, you know, most of Opsware, most of LoudCloud, which became Opsware, uh, most of that company was during the bust. And so we just kept on going all the way through the, the crash um, and, you know, just kind of kept slugging away through 2002, 2003, 2004 when things got really miserable in the tech industry. Um, and then we sold the company kind of right as the industry was coming. We actually... We sold that company right as the industry was coming out the other end in 2007, you know, headed straight into the credit crisis. Uh, so in retrospect, that was probably a good timing to sell that company as well. And at that point, did you – when did you start uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm? Yeah, so we started the planning for the firm. We spent about a year and a half planning and thinking it through, and we started that process actually in 2007. Um, and so my partner Ben and I sort of spent nights and weekends kind of writing the business plan and thinking through all the strategic uh, kind of things that we had to work out. Um, and then we kicked off the fundraising process, uh, in March of 2009. Um, and <laughs> I remember that very distinctly because March of 2009 was the low of the stock market after yep. the credit crisis. Yep. Um, and so nobody, uh, was raising a new venture capital fund in, 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 in the spring of 1990, in the spring of 2009. It was not a time when investors wanted to hear about a new venture capital fund. In fact, many of the large investors in venture capital and private equity were in a liquidity crisis in their own businesses. Um, including the big university endowments where they were having a real trouble meeting their commitments uh, back to their uh, sponsoring organizations. And so it was one of the more, as people, people have told us, it was the harshest, most hostile time to raise a new venture capital fund in 40 years. Um, of course, we're, you know, I don't know, contrarian or perverse, depending on how you look at it. And we said, well, that's probably going to be a very good time to raise a venture capital fund because... Sure. You'll <laughs> right. be alone. You'll be alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In fact, we were. We were. There were actually only two venture capital funds that got raised in 2009 in the entire year. Uh, one was ours, and the other was Vinod Kosla raised a new fund. He's one of the top venture capitalists in history of all time. Who, who uh, is that again? It's a gentleman named Vinod Kosla, uh -huh. um, and he runs his own firm called Kosla Ventures. Uh, he previously was a partner at Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. So he was one of the one of the partners at Kleiner Perkins who made them so successful in the nineties. And then before that, he was a co-founder of a company called Sun Microsystems. I've heard of them. Which was a yeah. big successful technology Pretty company. Successful. So he's, he's he's one of the legendary tech entrepreneurs and investors of all time. And so it was very I think it was straightforward for him to raise a new fund. It was a bit harder for us, but we were able to we were able to raise it. And, and that turned in fact that turned out to be a very good time to raise a fund because um, it put us in a position to invest when a lot of other people uh, had stopped investing. So even though uh, 2000 and – well, I'd say the, you've been around now as – the firm has been around for five years. It's been five of the least um, pleasant years in the American economy that weren't called a recession. Uh, officially, the recession ended in, um, in, the, in 2009, but it's been a pretty mediocre uh, run for the U.S. economy since then. But the technology world has been doing okay, and you've – You've invested, uh, according to the internet at least, uh, and of course the internet never lies, uh, you've invested in uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Foursquare, and so on, um, my, which are pretty successful companies. Uh, my question is, does that make you feel smart or is investing uh, a still a very um, uh, a humiliating and uncertain process? <laughs> uh, well – Venture capital is kind of guaranteed to be, to be humiliating because the the most successful venture capitalists of all time um, typically tank about half their investments. Um, by which I mean, if you take any of the top performing venture capital firms over the last forty or fifty years, and if you look at their if you get inside their portfolios and look at their portfolios, and these are the top firms, like right, the ones that return amazing returns over long periods of time. 
typically they lose half their companies, right? In other words, half their companies go under um, and they either return nothing uh, for the original investment or they return a fraction of the original investment. And so it's the kind of business, it's a feast or famine business. And in the same portfolio, you have both feast and famine. You'll have a company that gives you a 10x or, you know, if things go well, 100x or 1,000x return, and you'll have six other companies that are failing. Um, the sort of, uh, you know, twist then to how you spend your time is you spend most of your time actually dealing with your companies that are struggling and trying to help them, right? Because it's the companies that are struggling or failing that actually need the most help, right? The companies that are succeeding are generally doing just fine without you. Uh, the companies that are failing are the ones who really need help and support. And so a lot of what you end up doing at the job is supporting struggling entrepreneurs. Um, and so it's kind of c- continuously humbling. Um, <laughs> you know, there's always something, you know, there's always something, you're, you're a troubleshooter, right? There's always something going wrong. And, Psychologically, you just have to. We, we talk about we talk about this with our partners. Is you have to be psychologically prepared for the opposite of a life. You know, it seems like it'll be a life of glamour and, and, and excitement. It's more of a life of struggle and misery. Um, and if you're okay with that, because it's part of the package, then the overall deal is pretty good. Yeah, it's, I'd still call it nice work if you can get it. Um, it is. It, it is. It, it beats. It beats all the jobs I had when I was a teenager. Yeah, so it's, exactly. Great. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting to me is, as an outsider, is that you don't get particularly. You learn things, I'm sure, as you go forward, but you still fail at least half the time. It's not like, well, those five of the ten, those were the losers. Now, next time, I'll, I'll, I'll miss those. I won't invest in those. But you still have to fail five out of ten. You don't know which five are going to be. Yeah, so the reason for that is we think you can draw a two-by-two two matrix uh, for venture capital. And this is probably true for all investing, but it's certainly true for venture capital, which is you can basically draw a two-by-two. Two. And on one axis, you could say um, consensus versus non-consensus. Um, and on the other axis, you can say successful or failure. Um, and of course, you make all your money on successful and non-consensus. Um, and right, definitionally, the reason is because it's very hard to make money on successful and consensus. Because if something is already consensus, then money will have already flooded in and the profit opportunity is gone. Um, and so by definition in venture capital, if you're doing it right, you're continuously investing in things that are non-consensus at the time of investment. And let me translate non-consensus to practical terms. It translates to crazy, right? You're, you're investing in things that look like they're just nuts, right? Like who would believe, right? I mean, you know, and it's, this is kind of continuously the case through history. Who would believe that this VC thing would work at the time when the VCs were investing in PC companies? The whole thing was considered to be a joke. Um, when I started with, you know, internet startups, the internet, you know, the one thing everybody knew for sure was nobody would ever make any money at the internet, right? They would never be a business. Right. Just a, um, just a toy for, for communicating a little bit and interacting, but it's not going to, it's, there's no, there's no revenue stream that's going to come from it. Yeah, certainly not. And obviously the one thing you know for sure is nobody's ever going to buy anything over the internet. That of would course. be crazy, right? Because, yeah. you know, hackers might steal, you know, so. So, you know, and then you, you go on and on and on, and Google, you know, eBay looked not consensus, right? At the time, uh, a venture capital firm called Benchmark made the eBay investment, and a lot of people looked at eBay and they said, that's crazy. Who is going to sell, who's going to buy something from a seller somewhere around the world who they've never met before? Like, that's just nuts. And it's used. And, it's not even a new thing. It's, it's often yeah. a piece of, of it's, it's garage sale material. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right, yeah, exactly, that's exactly right, and so, and that continues to the present day, and, you know, more recently, you have these things, you know, Airbnb, we're very involved in, and Airbnb is an idea, even a couple of years ago, a lot of people were like, Airbnb is this idea that you're going to rent out the back room in your house, and then a random stranger is going to show up and stay in the room, that's crazy, right, you would never do that, <laughs> you would never rent out the room, and of course, you would never stay in a stranger's house, and it turns out, Airbnb, it turns out people love this, and it's growing like crazy, and it's, you know, the revenue is exploding. Well, now, I- the cor- the corollary to it, of course, is crazy does not mean correct, right? Yeah, crazy, often, next point. Cra- <laughs> right? Crazy often just means crazy. Yeah, and so Darn. you get some of both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I used to teach uh, a business uh, plan uh, class in a business school, and one of my students submitted a business plan that, in the financials over the life of the company, made no money uh, for the foreseeable future. And I said, "Well, you know, that's a little bit discouraging." to a potential investor and the students said, oh, well, all the best companies don't make any money. So that's a plus or a minus. So that, that's the challenge. You know, every crazy idea is not successful. It's a kind of a reverse yeah. causation uh, confusion there. Um, yeah, exactly. What um, you've made some very, but despite all that, you've made some very successful bets, presumably on uh, uncons- non-consensus companies that at the time, you know, 140 characters, uh, as a form of communication, seems like a ridiculous, does seem like a very ridiculous idea. 
Uh, are there some are there some you missed that you regret that you want to talk about? Are there some uh, lessons you learned that uh, now you can't believe those are the mistakes you made back then? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, like, and so as a corollary to this, the mistakes that we make in a field like venture capital, the mistakes generally aren't investing in something that turns out not to work. And th- this is something the press, I think, in particular, really struggles to figure out because it's like you put all this money in something and it failed and it wasn't that a mistake. That's generally not the problem. <laughs> the problem is what you just said, which is it's the big hit that you missed. Um, and so every venture capitalist who didn't, you know, who had the opportunity to invest in Google and didn't, right, just feels like an idiot. Every invest, venture capitalist who had the opportunity to invest in Facebook and didn't, you know, feels like an idiot. The challenge in the field is all of the great VCs, each of the great VCs over the last 50 years, the, the thing that they all have in common is they all fail to invest in most of the big winners. And so this, again, is part of the humility uh, to, the, to the profession, which is, you know, you literally, as, as an investor in any of these things, you can make, even if you've invested in some of the hits, you can make a long list of the hits that you missed, and those are the ones that drive you crazy. Um, I was not, a, you know, I was not a professional investor prior to five years ago, so, um, you know, we'll see in the fullness of time which ones I've missed in this period. But one of the things we do a lot is we try to backtest our theories against history, um, and so, cause we, we sit around all day long and talk about like, what are we looking for and how do we know that it's going to be great? And, you know, it's like we, we, we sort of debate criteria for investment, you know, all day long. And one of the questions I always ask us, and I'm not sure of the answer, um, is would we have invested in Google, um, when they were raising venture capital? Um, and the reason I, I, I actually wonder whether that's the case. And the reason is a good friend of mine was at another venture firm that passed on Google. Uh, when they had the chance to invest in it, and he said, "I said, why'd you pass on Google?" And this is back. This is back. This is back. Right around the same time that it happened. So I know that it's kind of accurate as opposed to just revisionist history. He said, "We passed on Google for three reasons." He said, "There were three reasons." He said, "Number one, you know, it was it, uh, number one, um, uh, absolutely no business model. Um, they had absolutely no idea how they were going to make money. Um, number two, the two most arrogant founders we'd ever met in our lives. Um, and number three, uh, very high premium valuation." Um, and he said, had there been only any two of those three problems, they would have still invested, but all three problems together prevented them from doing it. And in venture capital, that's a, you know, that's a $20 billion mistake. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, right? and, but right? if, if those so, are your three rules, if those are your three rules, you might save enough money on the other 30 billion that you might've thrown away. I, well, 30 billion is hard to throw away. <laughs> that's not a good answer. Maybe. I don't know. But you see, you see my point though. Well, but that's precisely the, you, you identified the exact problem and then the problem with the problem, which is, which is that it's a game. It's, it's the, the, the key characteristic of venture capital is it's a, it's the, the returns are on a power law distribution, right? So this like basically, so here, here's the way to think about it in the, in the math. There's about 4,000 startups a year, tech startups a year that want to raise venture capital. Um, of those, maybe 400 will get funded by top venture capital firms. Um, of those, about 15 will be responsible for over 90% of the profits for that entire year of companies. And that says and it all. so <laughs> it's a feast or famine business. If, if you do invest in Google and you invest in 100 losers, you're a spectacular success. Yeah. If you don't invest in Google and you invest in 100 losers, you're a horrible failure. And it turned out the only decision that mattered was did you invest in Google or not. And, of course, right, the corollary to it is you never know when Google's going to show up. Right. One of the weird things about Google was they showed up in 1999. So a couple of things about Google that made it would, would have made it harder at the time, which is, you know, if you believe there was a bubble in 1999, which a lot of people think that they believe, um, at least in retrospect, like that would have been the last time you want to invest in a money losing company run by arrogant founders at a premium valuation. Yeah. And yet that was the, that was the one to do. Second thing is Google was like the 35th search engine, right? It, it was not, you know, there's this whole thing about like first to market you know, and the innovator and like the whole thing. And yeah. like there had been six years of search engines before Google, many of whom at that point were large public companies and were considered very successful companies, Yahoo, Lycos, there were a whole bunch. Um, and Google was like late to the game. Now it turns out they were late to the game with a fundamentally better product. Um, and so like my friend Peter Thiel uh, likes to say, he says, it's not first to market that matters, it's last to market. You want to be the last company? Does you want to be the company that basically shuts down all following competition? Yeah. If if you can uh, right. do that, yeah, yeah, exactly. But what, what he says is basically that's the key to to actually getting all the investment returns, which is you want to be the one that basically is so good that it forecloses all future competition, and that and that often is not the first company. And so, if you think about the the decision path that you would have had, a lot of people think that if they had seen Google in 1999 and walked to the door, they would have been smart enough to make their investment. 
but the actual decision path that you would have had to follow in your own head to get all the way to the idea of investing in these guys with no business model at that time in a field that had already a ton of competition was a good idea. Like that was a leap. Um, and, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that that investment was made by two of the smartest VCs of all time, John Doerr and Mike Lawrence, right? Is like, that was a leap that required, you know, real, uh, foresight, you know, deep thought process and then a risk tolerance that most people simply don't have. Um, and so on our best days, that's what we aspire to be like. We aspire to take the bets that other people won't make. Uh, you know, we aspire to go way out on the edge of risk. Uh, another friend of mine once said, Mark, he said, you're ruined, you'll, you know, use venture capital or whatever. You'll never be able to work in any other area of financial services or investing because in every other area of investing, um, it's all about reducing risk. Whereas in venture capital, it's all about increasing risk. You know, the big danger is you're not far enough out of the risk curve. How much did uh, Dor and Morris put into Google at that point? Do you know? They put in about 20, $25 million between the two of them. Um, and they bought, I believe, $25 million bought somewhere between 15 to 20% of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would have gotten diluted down over time. So that would have translated to probably, let's call it 10 to 12% of the company today. And Google today is worth $340 billion. Yeah, so it's a good deal. So that sort of 25 million turned into, if, you, if, you, if they held the stock, uh, which they, you know, some of them didn't, but if they, if they had held the stock all the way through 15 years later, 25 million turns into somewhere between 35 and 50 billion. Yeah, that'll that'll pay for a lot of mistakes. What, what do you think was you're, you're suggesting that what made Google better than I, I'm old enough, as many of our listeners are. Uh, that's what's great about the internet. I'm not talking about the Korean War now. I'm talking about the the, the 1990s. I I remember Lycos and Yahoo as search engines. Of course, people still use Yahoo sometimes as a search engine, but you're suggesting that Google dominated that market because they had a, quote, better product. What was better about it? Yeah, so my friend Bill Joyce says it, it uh, he says it, uh, the, the key difference is that it had the it works feature. It had the feature where it worked. Um, so um, if you remember doing searches, if you remember doing searches on back in those days, unlike most of these other systems, you would do the search and you would get back, basically, um, you would very often get back useless results. And the programmers of those companies worked really hard to try to get you back those results. But like a lot of the time you got back, just like you just got back noise. And what had actually happened was users, it turns out, users had got trained to not expect much from their search engine. Right. So they had gotten trained that the results were going to be very good. Um, and so users actually didn't do that many searches. And when they did, they would spend a lot of time going through and trying to find the one good results. You know, out of the first hundred links or something like that. Um, the people who really understood this stuff, um, uh, number one, you could you could use Google early on if you had early access to it, um, and you could just you could compare the results and you could just see that they were better. And it was it was very 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 visible and, and very visceral. And then of course, better results. Not only is better results, it also makes people are going to use it a lot more, and so people would use Google a lot more than they would use the other ones. And then if you were a computer scientist and you had access to these guys and you could talk to them, what you would find out is they had a completely different kind of approach than the previous search engines. And they had this innovation that became famous called PageRank, um, where they just had a, they had a basically a computer science breakthrough, an actual technological breakthrough in how to do the scoring uh, to get to the best search results. And it turned out those things were discoverable. Um, you had to be, this is one of the things we find. You had to be very close to the company to realize this, right? This was very hard to call from the outside. And a lot of people who passed on Google passed on Google without even getting to the point where they learned these details. Um, and it turned out the details really mattered because they really did make a big difference. Right. The, the elevator pitch, I have a better search engine, is not that compelling. Uh, yeah. Because the question would be how much better and who cares and, and then what? Uh, and they had – they answered all those questions, although, like you say, from the outside, that was probably very hard to discern, especially the – and then what? Because the ability to monetize that uh, product was not obvious at all, even if you got into the guts of the algorithm. Yeah, and then, by the way, even then you would have had to invest not knowing how they were going to make money Yeah, because they didn't, ha- they didn't have that second part. They figured yeah. that second part out. Yeah. One of the things I like to say is, you know, we live in one of many parallel universes, um, and we know how this one played out, but we, we, but, but there exist universes in which every other scenario played out. And there are many other universes in which Google never figured out how to make money. Yeah. Um, and crash and burn, and we'd be a cautionary tale today. Um, and there are just twists of faith that happen along the way where they were able to figure out this, you know, AdWords algorithm, uh, to be able to make money. But had they not figured that out, and a lot of people didn't think they would be able to figure that out. Um, we would we would be having a very different conversation today. Um, and so, 
it's one of the things, again, it goes back to what's humbling about what we do is it's, you know, <laughs> limits to knowledge, right? There, there, there are real limits to what you can know. Which, by the way, it means that if you're going to operate in this field and if your requirement for investing in something or, you know, backing something or going to work for something is you're going to know for sure that it's going to succeed, you're never going to do anything. Yeah. Never right? sure. There, there is no, there is no, <laughs> you know, there, there, there is no return without the risk. Well, one, one of my favorite stories is uh, how Fred Smith supposedly, it may not be true, but supposedly after he got turned down for the last time by Chicago banks to borrow money to keep FedEx afloat – was in the Chicago airport and ready to return to Memphis to tell his employees that it was over, instead took a plane, I think, to Reno and put all of his money, which included, I think, his sister's trust fund money uh, on, I don't know, red or black or whatever, and made enough money to cover his payroll that week, and they made it. And I always think what would have happened if he hadn't looked up at the board of departures and noticed a flight going to Reno? And if Doran Morris hadn't made that investment, would Larry Page and – Sergey Brin be doing something different right now, or would they have eventually gotten to where they are? I don't know. So, very, very, well, the other thing was that that company, nobody will admit it today, but that company was very fireable in the beginning before they had the business model. There were any number of other big tech companies that could have bought Google for small amounts of money. Um, and Larry and Sergey could have gone on to be mid level engineers um, at Yahoo. Um, and again, it's just it's a it's a twist it's a twist of fate. A, fate, that, you know. a fate worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> that's what some people would say. No, I mean compared uh, to what they, know, compared nothing wrong with being a mid level engineer at Yahoo, but compared to what they became, that's all. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so you, you and so again, this comes back to limits of knowledge, which is like, you know, how many great entrepreneurs are there who just haven't realized that they had a path that didn't involve going to a big company? Yeah. Um, you know, it's you know, and then how many of the failures, you know, how many of the business failures that we can all name were like one step away from success and they just didn't figure out that one step? Yeah. And those are the answers. Well, well, you know, those are the questions we'll never know the answer to. But they, they're very tantalizing and they, they, they cause us at least to be, we, we have this kind of theory in our firm of sort of, what we call, it's a software term of what we call late binding. So we, we try to make what we call late binding decisions. Which is to say, basically, delay making decisions on these things until as late as possible. Sure. Because you really never know. Like, it, there's a very, very high risk that your early decisions are going to be incorrect. And you really want to delay making decisions until you get every piece of data you possibly can. Because um, it's just it's so hard to tell. So, in 2011, you wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal called Why Software is Eating the World. Explain your argument and why the evidence continues to accumulate that you were right. Yeah, so the argument basically has to do with the evolution of the computer industry. So the computer industry is sort of one of these industries where it sort of had this trickle-down model for a long time where computers historically would get built for the biggest customers, which were big companies and big government agencies, and they would cost tons of money. Um, and then 10 years later, 20 years later, somebody would package them up into a cheaper you know, form factor and then make them available to smaller companies. And then you know, kind of 40 years into the computer industry, the PC came along, which was the first thing that individuals could buy. You know, and then, you know, 20 years after the PC, the smartphone came along. Um, and the smartphone is a big breakthrough um, because the smartphone is the first computer um, that is packaged up and delivered in a form where everybody on the planet can have one. Um, and so, you know, the way I think about it is that the, the two giant twin kind of dominant stories of our era um, are, number one, the enormous rise uh, of the developing world and the, you know, introduction of billions of people into what we would consider to be the modern economy. Um, And then in parallel with that, right, intertwined with that is the smartphone revolution, um, which is everybody on the planet um, getting a, you know, what is the equivalent of a supercomputer from 20 years ago in the form of a smartphone. That they have have with them all the time. So it's not everybody has them and have them all the time, has them all the time. And have them all the time and they're all on the network, right? They're all connected. Um, they're They're all on the internet. And so, We've gone from a world in which most people didn't have computers, right? The PC only ever got to about a billion people out of 7 billion people total. The smartphone is going to get to all 7 billion. Um, two big things happening right now in real time. Um, one is that uh, in both India and Pakistan, um, the price of smartphones now has plummeted to $35. Um, and so all of a sudden, it's a $35 consumer purchase, which is within reach of a very large number of people. Um, and then second is, even in the poorest parts of the world, uh, it took revealed consumer preferences, uh, even the poorest people in the world will choose uh, smartphone and internet access even over indoor plumbing and electricity, uh, given the choice. And you hear uh, people working in the field in, in, the, in the most, uh, in the most uh, you know, poverty-stricken parts of the world who are who not come back and report that. 
Um, and so you really do have this kind of, you have this universal computer for the first time. Everybody's going to have one. You know, these things are shipping in the billions now. Um, by the end of the decade, everybody on the planet is going to have one of these things. So everybody's going to have a computer. Everybody's going to be on the Internet. Um, and, and that's a new world, right? That, that's a world that we've never lived in before. We have no idea what that world is like. It's, 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 it's brand new. Um, well, one of the things that you know um, is that all of a sudden, um, if you can conceive of a way to take a product or a service, um, and if you can conceive of a way to deliver it through software, you can now actually do that. So I'll give you an example. Let's just talk about banking as one example, which is, you know, historically, the idea of having an online-only bank that was only delivered through software would have been considered lunacy because most people don't have computers, and so you need branches, you need tellers, you need ATM machines, right? You need this big physical footprint to build a bank. Today, you could just make the simplifying assumption. You could start a bank, and you could just say, I'm only going to make the bank available online. And it's only going to be available to people through their smartphones. So it's just going to be software, and there won't be anything else to it other than just software. And all of a sudden, you could have a bank with an addressable market of 7 billion customers entirely in software without any of the physical overhead of how today's existing banks operate. Um, and so this is the software eats the world thesis, which is we now for the first time can basically go field by field, category by category, industry by industry, product by product. And we can say, you know, what would they be like if they were all software? And then entrepreneurs in virtually every field we're talking about um, are attempting to do that. Um, and so there are entrepreneurs attempting to do software-only financial services, software-only education, software, you know, healthcare, uh, and, and, you know, obviously then, you know, the media industry is being transformed to software, obviously e-commerce, retail is being transformed to software. Um, and, you know, and this is sort of where I disagree so much with people who are, are worried about, you know, uh, you know, sort of innovation slowing down, which is I think the opposite is happening. I think innovation is accelerating because the minute you can take something that was not software and make it software you can change it much faster in the future. It's much easier to change software than it is to change something with a big physical real-world footprint. Yeah, if, on, if only we could stay in digital hotels because the biggest cost of a hotel is they got to replace the furniture every once in a while. But that's – for so many other things, the furniture is digital, so it's a piece of cake. Yeah, exactly. And so, so what's happened is all of a sudden software professionals – and not just in the U.S., all over the world – software professionals, software entrepreneurs – are looking at industries where historically they have not, you know, industries that have not been tech-driven, industries that have not been internet-based, and then looking at those industries, and they're saying, now's the time, right? Now's the time to build a software bank. Now's the time to build a software school. Um, and there are entrepreneurs all over the planet uh, who have figured this out, and they're going straight for it. And, of course, our, our job as venture capitalists is, you know, is, 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 is to fund them. Um, what are the consequences of this? You know, many things. Number one, you know, consumer welfare um, is, is on the rise way more than I think people are willing to give it credit for. I think that, you know, the universe of opportunity that opens up to you once you have a smartphone in terms of your ability to get to all these services, your ability to get to information, your ability to get access to global markets, your ability to get access to education. You know, from a consumer welfare standpoint, this is nirvana, right? This is like everybody has the magic box through which they can get access to all this software. Like, that's amazing relative to all the physical limitations, you know, the way things used to work. So consumer welfare is on the rise very fast and, and on a much broader footing than, than, than people believe. You know, even the poorest rural villager now has access to resources that the National Security Agency didn't have access to 10 years ago. So, you know, that's an enormous uh, sort of consumer welfare change. Um, rate of evolution, I think, increases in a lot of industries because software can, can mutate much faster. Um, prices can come down very fast in a lot of industries. Um, one of the things that I think is very interesting economically right now is I think price deflation um, across the economy is a much bigger factor than people think um, because as you know, it, you take a product that used to be hardware and you make it software, or used to be a retail store and you make it software, and you take out huge parts of, of cost, which means prices fall. Um, and and then and then I'd say probably the final thing is entrepreneurship is on the rise um, because everybody in the world who can write software, which is a large number of people, um, you know, can now be an entrepreneur if they want to. Um, and can 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 go after these opportunities in, in, in many different fields. So you've been very um, enthusiastic about Bitcoin, and we recently did an episode on Bitcoin. Uh, you've actually compared Bitcoin to innovations such as the personal computer and the internet. Very bold claim. Uh, what's the source for that enthusiasm? Yeah, so this is not a claim that I have made about anything else in the last 20 years. So this is the first time I've said, I've said this. That indicates sort of the, the, the depth of seriousness with which I take it. Um, Bitcoin.
Bitcoin, Bitcoin and the ideas underneath Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is an instance of this broad topic, which is in the computer science world is called cryptocurrency. Um, uh, so, which is sort of this area of R&D that's been going on for 20 years. One, one of the things about Bitcoin it's important to understand is it's not just an overnight thing that somebody just dreamed up. It's the result of 20 years of really hard work on the part of a lot of brilliant computer scientists that kind of finally catalyzed in the form of this Bitcoin thing. But there's, there's, there's very deep intellectual kind of background behind, behind Bitcoin. Um, the big breakthrough is in this idea called, this underneath Bitcoin, underneath cryptocurrencies, the idea is called distributed trust. Um, and so the idea basically is, you know, okay, take 7 billion people, put them all online with their smartphones. Okay, now you, in theory, have the ability to do business with anybody on the planet, but how do you know who to trust, right? And how do you do trusted transactions, right? How do you send, for example, how do you send money from point A to point B, right? Knowing who's sending it, knowing who's receiving it, um, knowing that the money isn't being, you know, it's, it's digital money that's not being copied along the way, which is what's called the double spending problem. Um, and then how do you do a transaction with digital money in a way where everybody else around you is able to verify that that transaction actually happened, right? And so people can't say, oh, I was defrauded or I never got the money or, you know, whatever. And how can you do that in a way that doesn't require centralized institutions? How can you do that in a way that doesn't require a bank, you know, or a credit card company or a payment processor? And or, so, the, or the Department of Justice or, you know. Well, the police. Well, we can, the we can police. You need, you need – be great if you could avoid the police. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's exactly right. So contracts, well, let's talk about this for a second. So, right, contracts, the way contracts work in the U.S., right, is you sign a piece of paper. Well, okay, like what happens if somebody forges a signature? Well, you call the cops, you, you, you take it to court, you have a lawsuit, you go through, you know, you go through like all this stuff, and you're exactly right. You either are working with the police or you're working with, with contract law and with, with courts. So you immediately fall back on the centralized institutions, and, you know, you hope they get to the right outcome. Well, you know, what if you had a digital contract that was unforgeable? Right. So if once you signed it like that was it, it was provable after the fact that you signed it and nobody else could have signed it. And and what you signed, you had to keep that there was no uncertainty or virtually no uncertainty that you'd keep the promise that your signature represented. Right. Because that's the other piece that's always uncertain. Well, so the first thing is just being able to just, the first thing is just being able to interact. There, there, there are consequences to many of these things. But the first thing is to be able to interact. So let me give you a basic concept of let's, let's just take the basic concept of ownership. Right. So who owns what? Right. So who has title to what? Right. And, and again, in the West, we take it for granted. We've got, you know, like real estate titles. We've got, we've got, uh, you know, title agencies. We've got contract law around titles and all the rest of that. And ultimately, yes, there's enforcement. If somebody tries to squat in somebody else's house, there's enforcement. But we have very clear ways to determine who owns what. Of course, in a lot of, in a lot of the world, that's a lot. They're very expensive, those titles. Very expensive. Right? When you buy a house, a frighteningly large amount of money has to go to prove that you're actually buying and selling the house that you both have in mind. It's a big yeah, set of institutions exactly. around it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, in much of the rest of the world, in much of the developing world, there isn't clear title, right? I don't know if DeSoto's written about this a lot, and this, this is like this continues to be a big problem in India. There's some, I don't know what the number is now, but it, there's some large percentage of Indian real estate, just real estate and land in India, which is not clear who owns it. Um, right, and so this is sort of a, a generalized problem. And of course, if you can't own land, then you know, do you have the basis for capital and all the other, all the, all the other things that Thomas talk about? So. Um, so then you kind of say, well, okay, we need to we need to have a system through which everybody in the world can establish ownership. We can have a consensus view of who owns what, and then can have a way to transfer ownership from one person to another in a way that can be validated and can be trusted, without having to recreate these giant centralized institutions, which might either take decades to build, um, you know, in, in in systems where the governance is not strong enough to do that yet, um, or it might just be like prohibitively expensive. Um, and it may not be possible to have what we would consider to be a modern title system for, you know, land in, in the world where incomes are much lower, uh, which, you know, might be part of sort of the development trap is it may just not be possible to have that. It may not be cost effective to have the institution required to let people uh, develop economically. Um, and so what if we could, what, what if we could just do that digitally, right? What if we could just do that on the internet for free? Um, well, we can send email back and forth for free. Right? I send messages back and forth. Why can't I send title back and forth? Um, and there were a set of breakthroughs that had to happen uh, around trust and around photography that had to happen that in fact happened over the course of the last you know five or ten years. Um, and then the key breakthrough was this breakthrough, the Bitcoin breakthrough, by this sort of anonymous inventor, uh, Satoshi uh, Nakamoto, um, who came up with this idea of the blockchain, um, which is kind of this trust model for establishing who owns what, who controls what, you know, who has committed to what at different points in time. Um, and so that's a really big breakthrough. And so you can think about that breakthrough, you know, Bitcoin, people think of it as digital money and it is digital money, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's potentially also digital contracts. 
It's potentially digital title, digital ownership, digital keys, uh, digital assets, you know, unique, unique media files, which has always been a big problem on the internet. Um, you know, single copies uh, of, of media could be done this way. Um, and then ultimately, digital stocks, digital bonds, digital loans, digital insurance contracts. Um, and so you can kind of see where I'm headed with this, which is this kind of distributed trust breakthrough is a wedge uh, that the technology has now made possible. Um, and now what's going to happen, and this happening right now, is hundreds and soon thousands of entrepreneurs starting companies to do software-based contracts, software-based signatures, software-based keys, software-based title on all, all these different categories using this underlying Bitcoin technology. And that's what's going to happen in the next five years. And that's what we're funding. What could derail that? Um, what do you think threatens the viability, not of Bitcoin per se, but of this cryptocurrency distributed trust breakthrough? Is that breakthrough, is it over? We're done? It's solved? It's, we don't have to worry about it anymore? Or are there things you think are, are still uncertain about it? So at the highest level, it's hard to see it stopping. And the reason it's hard to see it stopping the reason it's hard to see it stopping is it's just math. It's just math. It's just bits. Um, and so um, it's like stopping the internet itself. Like, if, like for example, it's you know you watch. I'll just give an example. You watch this country's Turkey going through this right now, right? Where they're you know they, they you know something happens politically and they decide they want you know they don't want bad behavior you know on Twitter or YouTube and so they ban Twitter, right? And then the next thing you know is hackers in that country find three thousand different ways for people to still be on Twitter. Um, or all the behavior then shifts to YouTube, and then they ban YouTube, right? And then increasingly they look like they're you know doing terrible things to their citizens, and then at some point they reach a point where they just need to shut the entire internet off. <laughs> but the problem is, if you shut the internet off, you tend to drive everybody out into the streets, and that's the last thing you want if you're trying to prevent a revolution. And so, you know, if you want to be, you know, if you're North Korea and you can prevent people from using the internet, you can stop all this stuff. But I don't know how modern countries can like shut off the internet. Like I, I you know, I think we're past that point. Um, and so, you know, short of shutting off the internet, you have to somehow, you know, take a, you'd have to take a very aggressive path to try to, you know, intercept these bits. You know, it's like trying to prevent people from talking. It's like, you know, you could try, um, except there are an enormous number of people who want to make sure that the free flow of information doesn't stop. Um, and oh, but, so, but there's hack, I understand you're talking about the government response, but what about the private hacking response? Is that, do you think the ability, just to take an example, to hack into somebody's Bitcoin wallet is um, is going to be is that going to be a problem in the future, or is it going to is that quote solved? Is the problem of duplicate money that I forget the technical term you used, more than one copy that that you know I pay somebody and then they can somehow buy buy this two different rugs with the same with the same coins? Uh, are those technical problems? Do you think that's they're over? They're solved? Or do you think there are other risks involved uh, technologically? So those problems are solved in theory. So this is a complicated question, so I'll give a fairly complicated answer. So those problems are solved in theory. And the reason we know that those problems are solved in theory is because, like I said, this isn't just an overnight thing. This is something people have been working on for 20 years. And every step of the way, they've been trying to break it. At the same time, they've been trying to build it. Um, Bitcoin itself has been now out for over five years, and many of the best hackers in the world have spent the last five years trying to break it. And there's been a huge financial incentive <laughs> to break it. Um, and uh, it's not, it has not been broken. And so, you know, can I prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it never gets broken? No. Um, do I know that many of the best hackers in the world have been trying hard for years and have been unable to break it? Yes. Um, in the real world, how do you know that something's secure? At some point, you know that something's secure because people have tried to break it and it failed. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. How do I know a vault is secure? Well, people haven't figured out how to open it. So, theoretically, it's, a, it's in a very good place. Like it's, and, and by the way, we feel it's in like a good enough place to obviously be able to back companies that are being built on it. And, and you know, we watch, you know, we're deep in this world. We're deep in the security world. We know a lot of hackers. So we track this stuff very carefully. And nobody's making any progress cracking it. So, so, so far, so good. Um, and of course, and then every year that goes by, you know, you get more and more assurance, you know, because it, it just, you have more and more evidence that it, that it has broken. Now, that's in theory, um, and, and that's important, right? It's important that that, that, that be the case in theory. It counts. Right? Then, then there's in practice, right, which is, okay, then it has to get implemented in the real world and get used by normal people. Um, and so there you get into things like, you know, your Bitcoin account is going to be protected by a password, right? And if you pick the wrong password and your password gets, you know, easily guessed by a hacker, then somebody can take all your Bitcoin. And, like, that's still the case. But in a sense, like, of course that's the case because that's the case with everything, right? If you do that with your email, people can read all your email. 
you know, if you leave your car unlocked with the keys in the ignition in the middle of the street, come back in two hours, it probably won't still be there. Um, and so it sort of reduces down to this, you know, broader question of, you know, making sure that the digital systems that we use are generally secure. Um, and there's all kinds of work going into that throughout the industry, you know, using, you know, uh, uh, you know, new kinds of authentication methods, using fingerprints, you know, retinal, you know, retinal scanners, you know, all these different approaches to make systems more secure. Um, and so, you know, at some point you do have these kind of practical issues, but, um, it's certainly every bit as secure as an online banking system, as an example. Like, you know, it's, it's, I'll put it this way, it's more secure than the typical online bank. Uh, it's more secure than the Obamacare website. Like, you know, it's more secure than most commercial websites. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of beyond the point where you usually worry about this, uh, in terms of building a business. And then you just need to work with your users to make sure that they're doing responsible things. If Bitcoin were widely used and accepted, and it's, I think, on the road to being that payment system, would you be comfortable with large chunks of your wealth in your Bitcoin wallet? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Well, so bear in mind also, right, Bitcoin is very clever about Bitcoin. The money doesn't actually have to be online. One of the interesting things with Bitcoin is you don't actually have to have the money in the wallet. You can actually, Bitcoin is numbers. And so you can actually store your Bitcoin in a safe, but you can print your Bitcoin out on paper and store it in a safe deposit box. Hmm. Uh, right. And so there's a variety, there's this called cold storage. There's a variety of cold storage methods. Uh, and there are actually companies now that are going into this business, a sort of Bitcoin cold storage, where it's almost like, you know, it's like a safe deposit box business, right? Um, you know, it's safe to store your family jewelry in a safe deposit box in the bank. Well, yeah, it's fine if all, you know, they do more it. More or less. It. More so, or less. Yeah, yeah. More, more or less. More or less. And by the way, by the way, the other thing is, right, there's insurance, right? Yeah. You can insure your jewelry. Well, there's, there will be a variety of different insurance mechanisms for Bitcoin, right? And so you'll be able – both Bitcoin wallet companies themselves are going to have insurance, um, and then you yourself will be able to buy insurance um, against these kind of, kinds of risks. And so it'll be, a com- it'll, it'll be like anything in the, re- in the real world. It'll be a combination of, you know, you don't carry all your money around in your back pocket with you in the form of cash every day. Um, you, know, uh, you know, you store some of it in a bank account. You maybe store some of it in, a, in gold that's in a safe deposit box. Maybe you store, you know, some of it maybe if you're really paranoid, you bury it under your front porch. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's kind of the same thing with Bitcoin. Like, you can do that. You can put it on paper and uh, bury it in the proverbial manager store under your front porch if you want to. Well, let's shift gears. Let's talk about uh, the news business. And sure. uh, you've written about that recently. Most, most journalists um, – are very pessimistic, uh, worried about journalism. Uh, they're the people who work for newspapers that I talk to. Other kind of journalists obviously are less worried, but uh, you're optimistic about the future of journalism. Why? Yeah, so I take a very different perspective on this. <clears throat> and it's a perspective based entirely on business and economics, and I'll, I'll kind of describe why. So if you kind of study the history, the news business is actually an old business, right? It's been around for about 500 years. Newspapers has been around for about 500 years. For the first, you know, 450 years of the newspaper business, it was a brutally competitive business. Like it was, if in there, one of my favorite books, there's a book called Infamous Scribblers, uh, which is a history of the news business in colonial America. And it's sort of a good slice in time kind of thing of what it was like to be in the newspaper business, like in, you know, colonial Philadelphia, like, you know, 1770. And, you know, which is like when Ben Franklin was in this business, right? Um, and what you realize is it was a brutally competitive business where, you know, any, any given, you know, uh, city would have 15 different newspapers and, you know, they would all have a different subjective point of view and they would all be, you know, some of them would be political attacks, you know, kind of organs and people were writing under pseudonyms. I think Franklin himself had like a dozen different pseudonyms that he would write under, you know, to, 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 to prosecute different agendas. And it was kind of this whirling free for all of kind of, um, you know, activity and news and information and advocacy and politics. And it was kind of this zoo. Um, and, you know, it ran that way for 450 years. By the way, it created very large empires in the process. So the first empire, the Pulitzer empires, were, you know, very big businesses based on kind of that kind of approach. Um, what happened really, I think, was, especially in the U.S., after World War II, um, the news business consolidated into a set of oligopolies, uh, into an oligopoly structure. Um, and in particular, in the newspaper business, it consolidated into local monopolies. Um, and so what happened, and this was due to kind of scale economics, uh, uh, you know, kind of per city. Um, and so in any given major city in the U.S., basically over the course of a couple of decades, you went from 15 newspapers to five newspapers, ultimately down to one newspaper. And so you had the Chicago Tribune in Chicago, and you had the L.A. Times in L.A., and kind of so on and so forth. And it was only the largest cities that would have a few different newspapers. But even there, you'd have a big dominant one like the New York Times. So then 50 years passed where, if you're a journalist, by definition, you were working for a monopoly. 
And, you know, those of us who have worked with, you know, companies over the years, there's a big difference in interacting with monopoly or working for a monopoly versus interacting or working with a company that is in a competitive business. Yep. And right, it's, right, it's the difference between, you know, dealing with a company that has to compete every day versus a company that it doesn't. You know, doesn't have to compete, <laughs> doesn't have to compete, right? Yeah. You know, but like to say, every, every, monop- every monopoly has the same motto, right? Which is, we don't care because we don't have to. Yep. Um, and so you have these companies and they had, you know, they were companies, they're businesses like any other, and they have monopolies. And so they could act like monopolies. And so they had generations of managers, you know, over, you know, then two generations, three generations of managers passed. Um, and at a certain point, you only had people going to work for these companies who wanted to go to work for a monopoly. Um, and they, just, and, and by the way, they got, it worked. Like, you know, these businesses got better and better. You know, the newspaper business actually didn't really start to collapse until after 2005, right? They, these companies actually grew tremendously, you know, even through the initial phases of the internet. So they have very, very big, very big margins, um, you know, and, you know, so the business executives certainly made a ton of money, you know, expense accounts, big fancy buildings, lots of long lunches, like the whole thing. So then, right, what happens, of course, the distribution technology changes, right? The reason these all centralized in monopolies was because of the scale, the scale economics of distribution, right? Having the printing press and the, the fleet of trucks that would actually get the newspaper out, right? You had a scale advantage if you were, if you were the sole provider. The internet stripped the um, monopoly status on the distribution side out from under all these companies. And then, and, they all took, of a sudden, and then they took the revenue stream away from them too. So you had the, the ads and the classifieds. And... Well, they did something very specific there, which is it wasn't so much that you had new online newspapers that did the same thing that the offline newspaper did. It was that you, you, the, the product got un- unbundled. Yep. Right. And so, right. Because in the old days, right, people had this sort of romantic view that a newspaper was like this bastion of democracy and kind of all the stuff that the journalists like to talk about. The reality is most of the newspaper was, you know, the grocery store ads, right? And the car, and the, and the, and the, and the car dealership ads, right? And the, 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 the one ad, right? The classified ads, uh, the sports scores, the stock quotes, you know, the funny pages, the horoscopes, you know, Dear Abby, you know, uh, entertainment news, TV listings, right? Crossword. It was sort of, it was this. It was this bundle. It was this bundle of information, and it made sense for that information to all be in a bundle, and it made sense for all the revenue streams associated with all those components to be in a bundle because of the cost of distribution. Because it, it, it didn't make any sense to have a, you know twenty different specialist newspapers each covering those different topics. It, it made sense to have one where everything is bundled in. You put that on the internet, and all of a sudden, you know, to your point, Craigslist takes all the classifieds, and Yahoo Movies takes all the movie listings. And, you know, Yahoo Finance takes all the, you know, stock quotes. And ESPN.com takes all the sports scores and kind of on and on and on. And so the product got unbundled. The distribution monopoly fell away. Um, the competitive battle started immediately, right? And, and the competitive battle has been really fascinating. You had newspapers competing with newspapers who didn't used to compete, right? The New York Times and the LA Times never used to compete. And, and today they do because as a user on the web, you can go to either one equally. And then, of course, the New York Times never would have viewed CNN as a competitor in the old days. But in the new world, New York Times and CNN, you know, or New York Times.com and CNN.com are just two different websites, yeah. right? And so you have competition across media channels. Um, and then you had this kind of great unbundling taking place and you had the revenue vanishing. And so it, it felt like a perfect storm. Like if you're inside one of these media companies, if you're a newspaper publisher, it's like, oh my God, the entire thing is collapsing. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but the root cause, I, I just believe, has been misdiagnosed. The root cause is you were used to being a monopoly. You weren't used to competing, right? And so, so what's the root answer to this entire thing going to be? It's going to be to compete, right? It's going to be to take the stance of every business in the world that actually has to compete for a living and figure out fundamental questions. What's my differentiation? What's my competitive advantage, right? What's the appropriate cost structure? Who are my customers? What do they want? You know, <laughs> where am I unique? Where am I not unique? Um, and so it's a time when we need proprietors for news organizations that are like the proprietors from the 30s and 40s. We need, we need proprietors and owners and managers who are full-on capitalists, full-on aggressive business people who are very good at slicing up markets and identifying revenue opportunities, very good at rationalizing cost structures and all the things that you have to do in any normal business. Um, and, and, of course, this causes the journalists to just freak out because they're like, oh, my God. The whole point of objective journalism is you're supposed to have the separation of church and state and the business isn't supposed to affect the journalism and now you're going to sell more business people who can borrow charge instead of ruin the whole thing. And I take the exact opposite answer, which is the way to guarantee high-quality journalism is to have it be a successful business. And if you don't have a successful business, then at best you have a charity. Uh, and in a worst case, you have a bankruptcy. And so you have to solve it. As a, you have to solve the problem as a business. Um, the good news is that 
the market is much larger than it used to be, right? Um, and this is something we think a lot about in tech, which is we think of venture capital, we think a lot about what's the market size of what you're going after. The internet has caused you all these problems, but the internet has given you a gift, which is a much larger addressable market, right? And so the, even the New York Times, historically, its total market size was the people it could distribute a physical newspaper or two in New York. Today, its addressable market is the entire world, right? And hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world who need to know what's going on. Um, and so these businesses need to be reconstituted around market segments that, you know, have a need for a differentiated product. But many of those market segments are orders of magnitude larger than they used to be. Um, business and finance news will be the leader in the recovery because the rise of the number of people globally who need business and finance news, right, is, is growing very fast. And of course, those people have expense accounts, so they can easily afford to pay for information that's valuable to them. So I think the Wall Street Journal from here is going to do really well. I think that the Financial Times, you know, probably at some point under a new owner, at some point is going to do really well. Um, I think that, you know, and then there's a variety of, by the way, new startups and business and finance news that are growing very fast that are going to do very well. Um, and then general news and other categories of news will follow. It's an inspiring story. I happen to agree with it. I think you're right. Um, there's a lot of romance about being a journalist that I think isn't even true uh, about the objectivity part and supporting democracy. We do need journalism to – it is journalism is useful for um, exposing tyranny and corruption, and I think it will continue to do that. So um, I'm like you, an optimist. How about um, – we're, we're low on time, but I want to hear your thoughts on two areas that everybody cares about, which are healthcare and education. We've talked a lot about uh, MOOCs on this program uh, do you think uh, they're real or overblown? Do you th are they going to revolutionize education in the ways that we've been talking about? And is software going to change healthcare in the next five to ten years? The way I, I think it will, but I'm curious what you think. You're smarter than I am. So we'll see. So I think the answer in education um, is, a, is a broader question. So I think the, the, the question in education, the real question is a broader question, which is um, the existing education system, especially at the college university level, actually works pretty well. Um, and so, you know, what I always tell people is, you know, if you can like, if you can go to Stanford, go to Stanford. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not on, you know, my friend Peter Thiel's bandwagon of like, don't go to college. I'm, you know, go to Stanford, go to Harvard, you know, go to, and I went to University of Illinois, great school, you know, go to Purdue, go to University of Washington. Um, you know, these are great. And by the way, there's lots of great, you know, private high schools or public high schools that are very good. Um, and, uh, you know, like, it's great. If you can get there, it's great. There are a very large number of people in the world and a very large number of kids coming up who are never going to go to any of those places. Um, and we know that because the numbers just don't work, right? Yep. So just r run the math on how many, you know, how many people are there in the world today, you know, ages five and below, um, you know, who are going to hit the, you know, high school and college market, you know, in, in, in terms of age, you know, five, 10, 15 years out. And the one thing we know for sure is they're not going to be on a physical Ivy League campus or a physical university, you know, state school campus in the U.S. They're, they're going to, they're either not going to get educated, um, which would be a disaster for the entire planet, um, or they're going to have to get educated in a, in a different way. Um, and the only way to scale the education system to be able to meet the needs of everybody uh, on the planet who needs to be educated, the only way to do that is through software, right? It, it's, it's a ridiculously cost prohibitive exercise to try to figure out how to replicate the campus model uh, for the number of number of kids who are going to get educated. So the way I think about it is over a 20-year period, we have to solve this problem with software. Like, it, like <laughs> a large part of the future of the planet depends on solving this problem through software. So, you know, it becomes a moral issue actually quite quickly. Um, so we have to figure out how to do that. And so the argument that's almost a complete waste of time is, you know, would you rather be have a MOOC or go, you know, sit in the you know, lecture hall at Harvard? Like, I think that's, you know, I, I that's, not, that's not the question. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, I couldn't agree more. I always people say, "Well, face to face is so much better." I said, "Yeah, if you have a good teacher. How many people have a good mm -hmm. teacher? I, it's much better to have a great teacher yeah. on the internet than an awful teacher face to face. It's exactly. No comparison, or no teacher, or no teacher face to face. Yeah, because right? they don't show up in some parts of the world. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that that's the big thing, and that's that's the big thing that has, that has to be tackled. Um, you know, the other thing with it is there's really I think there's really two kinds of students. Um, you know, the, the thing you hear about American educators, you'll hear from American educators, especially at top-down institutions, is, you know, you don't understand you're naive. Like, kids don't want to get educated. Like, they only go to class reluctantly. And if you're not, like, on their, you know, on their tails all the time, they won't even do their homework and they're out partying all the time. And to me, that's like a symptom of, like, people who are rich and lazy. Um, like, there are a much larger number of people in the world who do not have that problem and whose parents do not have that problem. Yeah. Where the, the difference between educated and not educated is 
fundamental differences in quality life of life. Life and death, yeah. Life and death. It's absolutely fundamental. Um, and everybody knows it, and there's no illusions. Um, and so this whole thing where, you know, people like motivation for online education, yeah, rich Westerners might like the motivation, but like everybody else in the world is going to have the motivation in spades and does today. Yeah, they're kind of um, thirsty. Yeah, and so we just have to figure out. We collectively have to figure out. And this is, you know, this is this is a challenge. Companies play a role here. Governments play a role. Nonprofits are playing a really big role. You know, what? what like I'm a you know huge Khan Academy fan, as a lot of people yep. are. Fabulous. And what he wants to do over the long run is going to be just tremendous. Um, by the way, teachers play a huge role. One of the huge opportunities, and, and you're obviously an example of this, but the best teachers in the world are going to be able to have a much bigger impact. Yep. Make as more a result money. of this, right? Yep. Reach you, more you make more money. It reach a lot more people, exactly. Um, and so this is one of those things where the, the, the best teacher, a lot of the best teachers are going to get really fired up by what this means for them and the impact they can have on the world. So, you know, they're going to play a big role. So so that plays out. Um, let's see. So while we're on healthcare? really big topics. Healthcare? Uh, healthcare. Healthcare. So the challenge in healthcare is also the opportunity in healthcare, which is to fix the incentives. Um, you know, the, right, the, the, the pessimistic view is that it's sort of an unfixable situation because the incentives are just badly aligned. And if you're not paying for your own health care, if you don't understand what you're buying, that you don't care what it costs. And that's when you get this sort of out of control kind of thing. And even if in theory you could break the cost disease and you could bring productivity and permissive technology, nobody has the right incentives to do it. And so it'll never happen. The two really positive things that are happening right now, um, are in the U.S., that we're looking at very carefully are number one, um, this dramatic uh, rise in high deductible health insurance. Um, and a lot of this is actually being sparked as a consequence of this. This may be one of the big positive benefits of, of the Affordable Care Act is that a lot of people now are going to be operating under health care plans that have like $2,000 deductibles. Um, and so all of a sudden, a pretty high percentage um, of the actual sort of health events that you deal with, you're going to be paying significant money out of pocket. That'll change, um, and That'll change behavior. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so all of a sudden, if you get, and then it goes right back to the smartphone, if you give people the right kind of smartphone app, where instead of just going to whatever is the doctor and, you know, paying for it and getting whatever was thing you were going to do in the old days, led out of control costs, you know, what if you could either get the answer, right, for your smartphone or what if you could find a cheaper, you know, for like, for example, one of the big things in healthcare always is a lot of people go to see doctors for things that nurses can fix just as easily. But today, today's healthcare system, we have no reason not to go to the doctor. Um, in the future, if it's an easily diagnosed and resolved problem that a nurse can help you with, you'll be able to just do that. And, and by the way, you'll be able to do things like, you know, do reputation scoring on the, on the providers. Yeah. So you could find like a really good nurse or nurse practitioner to deal with, you know, whatever your, you know, minor problem is and pay a lot less money. So, so that's one big opportunity. The other giant underestimated thing that's happening is more big employers, um, are self-insuring their employee basis. Um, right. And so, you know, these really, really big multinationals, they're, they're actually putting the bill for their employees insurance more and more. Um, and so there you have very professional management teams, finance departments, HR departments that all of a sudden have a huge incentive to drive down costs and they can't drive down costs in a way that's going to like damage their employees. Cause that would be counterproductive, um, you know, in the driveway of the talent. Um, but they have a big incentive to optimize a, a direct profit incentive because all the areas drop straight to their corporate bottom line. Yep. And so we're seeing big companies um, as much more interesting adopters of new technology on behalf of their employees. Um, and there's a big opportunity there. Um, and so this, you know, obviously this, this is a big one. This will take a, a long time, but you can envision a combination of changing, you know, economic incentives combined with new technology, combined with, you know, increased role of individuals and, 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 and big employers, you know, combined with technological advances. Um, and it certainly gives you wedges to be able to come in and start to have an impact. Um, and so I would say there's reasons for at least mild optimism. Um, and then hopefully over the course of the next 10 or 20 years, we can start going after some of the really big problems. Last question. Are you worried about um, anything remotely like the singularity or the fear that technology is going to put everybody out of work except for the handful of people who can – create the new software that's going to make our lives better or what's your, um, what's your feeling about that? Optimist or pessimist? So very optimistic as follows. And this is the thing that nobody, we're, we live in such a cynical and pessimistic time that nobody wants to think about the other side of this. So I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there, which is we are with the smartphone, with the internet, with Google, with open source software, with all these things that we're talking about. Um, we're putting unbelievable tools in the hands of everybody on the planet um, to be able to do things, you know, in fundamentally better ways, to be able to get access to information, to be able to communicate, to be able to access global markets, uh, to be able to get access to, you know, up-to-date pricing, 
for their goods and services, to be able to, um, you know, to be able to open up uh, online storefronts, to be able to educate their kids, you know, on and on and on. I mean, these are, you know, it's like the Swiss Army knife of all time. You give somebody a smartphone, all of a sudden the entire world opens up. And so it's hard for me to believe that we're going to live in a world where, you know, another three or four or five billion people are basically going to be able to participate in the market economy for the first time ever in sort of a fundamental integrated way. Um, and that that's not going to lead to just enormous economic growth, right? I mean, how could that possibly be the case, right? We, we basically have to believe that all these people are going to have all these tools and all these opportunities and they're going to do nothing with it, right? Um, and so, which just seems to me to just be like because paranoid all, and just all just the good, All like, the good jobs will be taken. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but there exactly. won't be any new ones somehow. Somehow there are no new ones. Yeah. Job creation, right, right at the point of maximum opportunity, uh, there, yes, job creation will come to a complete halt. Um, so I'm on the other side of it, which is I think we, we are on the verge of what could be a much faster rate of growth globally, a much faster rate of growth than we're anticipating, just because so much more talent is going to get unleashed. I mean, there's so many smart people all over the world who have not been able to participate in the economy to their full potential who are now going to have the opportunity increasingly to, 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 to do so. So, so, so that means, you know, that means potentially a flowering of human creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you've got this global spread of the entrepreneurship culture. Um, you've got, you know, this, I mean, just what's happening in China alone with, with entrepreneurship is just spectacular. Um, you know, you've got the global spread of venture capital. You've got the creation of all these new businesses, industries. You know, you've got fundamental breakthroughs happening in science and research. Um, so you've got all this, all of these just incredibly powerful changes happening and, and, and really human potential being unleashed. Um, I think the big questions are the big questions around institutions and leadership, um, which is, um, you know, are the governments and the governance systems and the economic systems going to be, you know, set up, reformed, structured in the right way so that people can actually take advantage of these tools, right? And so are you going to be able to raise money for your company? Are you going to be able to, you know, are you going to be able to keep money when you sell something to your company or is it all going to be, you know, take out taxes? Are you going to be able to you know, hire employees or, you know, are you going to have, you know, European style labor laws apply everywhere where you can ever fire anybody. So then you don't hire anybody, right? The sort of really big policy questions become even more important um, because they, they, they affect a lot more people. Um, and of course, you know, there are many countries in the world that have extremely uh, ambitious and hungry and talented populations where, you know, the governance systems are still, you know, probably best described as kleptocracies, um, you know, that need to be reformed. Um, you know, we need modern, market-based economies. We need modern democracies. You know, we need those ideas to spread as fast as possible. Um, I think it will be a time of great political turmoil is probably my big prediction, which is, I think, you know, the number of, uh, the number of, uh, you know, government changes, regime, you know, uh, government turnover, uh, you know, literally revolutions in the streets. Uh, seems like it's on its way up, but people are becoming less willing to accept a bad state of existence because they're becoming more aware of the alternative. Um, and so I think there'll be a lot more political change, a lot more political pressure, a lot more political strife. Um, and I think the stakes are going up. My guest today has been Mark Andreessen. Mark, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Great. Thank you so much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.